Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Join us as we listen to queer classical music from around the world, talk with composers, and explore the wonderful, diverse, and growing repertoire of LGBTQ musicians. On this month's show, we talk with Arizona-based musician and composer Colin Nosek. Colin is a firm believer in mixing traditions and describes his music as if Radiohead were a bluegrass band that played on classical instruments. Now that has to be worth listening to. Now before we start, I want to let you know we had a few audio problems and sometimes the sound is not of the highest quality. We apologise for this and hope it doesn't spoil your entertainment. We did consider re-recording, but as you will see, we had so much fun talking with Colin, we could never hope to recreate it. So welcome, Colin, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. uh, I'm an avid listener of the podcast, so I feel very honored to be (laughs) You're, you're one today. of two, you're one of two then that's good so um so welcome <laughs> um would you, would you like to just introduce yourself briefly to, to the listeners yes so uh as samantha said i am a composer and clarinetist i uh recently finished my undergrad at the university of arizona um where i studied with uh dr k hua in composition and uh, Dr. Jackie Glazier uh, for clarinet. Um, I'm uh, Arizona-based. I uh, was raised in rural Arizona and uh, currently live in Tucson, um, which I I'm, uh, I really love the Southwest. I, I love being here. I find it really inspirational and, and beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what else to say. I think those are the bullet points. So... <laughs> That's great. And also, I mean, it's kind of interesting you mentioned the Southwest because we're going to listen to some of your pieces a little bit later on. But I certainly thought at least in one of those pieces, I got a strong feel of the Southwest. So do you think that's been a, an influence for you? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, actually, not so much in the ones that we're going to listen to today. So I'm interested to see <laughs> um, how it comes through unintentionally because I'm sure it, it does. But I, I've certainly like really heavily leaned into it and in some pieces and it's kind of been in the background and others but I, i'm sure it's always there <laughs> well it's okay. such a like a striking landscape it's hard not to even if yeah. it's unintentional i'm sure it's hard not to <laughs> have it be part of your uh your music making yeah absolutely it's something that i see as very like central to my background and um my upbringing and so it's just one of those one of those things that i always will consider a a part of me and by proxy my music yeah lovely yeah now one one of the things is i mean i i I, when i first came across you i I saw a lot of you playing clarinet there's a there's quite a few videos of me playing clarinet um but yeah i so i guess i was going to ask you was that you know do you see yourself 
as a, as a as first and foremost as a, as a performer as a, or do you see yourself more as a composer or is it some sort of balance between the two uh absolutely i'd say as a composer first um I've always I've always thought of myself as a better composer than performer. Um, I hope that's how it comes across to everyone else. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I definitely lean more into the composition. But uh, but I, I still love performing and um, and really loved studying performance. When did you start playing clarinet? Were you a were you like a seven year old start, or were you later in life? I say this as a clarinetist. Um, it's actually kind of convoluted, but I so I started. I must have been like eleven or maybe a little younger. Uh, I so I played clarinet for one year and then decided I didn't like it and switched to saxophone and like bassoon for like two weeks, like just kind of like trying to find the right instrument. Uh, and eventually landed on saxophone and played that all through middle school and into high school. And then um, I. I grew up in a really small town so our band was like 20 people there were not there were not (laughs) great performing forces and we had like seven saxophones and no clarinets so uh so the band director was like yeah i'm making an executive decision and and switched some of us to clarinet and i kind of really fell in love with it again and for some reason decided that that's what i wanted to do in college so so on and off there yeah, it's it was a a weird road, but <laughs> I've considered myself a clarinetist and not a saxophonist for for the last few years. <laughs> Fair enough. I always say I ended up on clarinet for two reasons. I've probably even told it on this podcast at some point. But uh, when I went in in grade, whatever it was, we were picking instruments. I had no idea what I wanted to play. But my grandfather said, you go in and you tell them you want to play the licorice stick. And so I went in and I told my band director that I wanted to play the liquor stick. And I'm sure he looked at me. I would have been nine at the time. Like, how the hell does this nine-year-old know what a liquor stick is? And then the other reason was I was taking piano at the time. And I was a mediocre pianist at best. And I still consider myself a mediocre pianist at best. Um, And at the end of the year, my piano teacher, we were finishing up lessons. And he said, so, Jacob, what are you going to do next year instead of piano lessons? What are you going to (laughs) do? And that was my hint that it was not going to be piano. It was going to be clarinet from here on out. Um, so I'd like to know when else people arrived at clarinet and how, because I, I, I think we've trauma. all I think we've all kind of got those stories. My, I, this is kind of irrelevant to the podcast, but I I played the oboe at school mainly because I was the last person into the class, and they got me gave me whatever was left, and they said play this. And it was like, I had no idea what it was. And I was so good, they made me a uh, third oboe in an orchestra of two oboes. So, so that, was, <laughs> that, was, that was my quality, uh, uh, musical education. So. so you ended up on clarinet. And uh, when did you start composing? When, when did that kind of begin for you? Uh, in high school, um, I guess... <laughs> technically but you know those those early years are never terribly clear as when you start saying like yeah i was writing music then and not just Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. throwing notes at at a page um so yeah i started playing in or i started composing 
uh, in high school, uh, kind of over the summer, just to have sort of something to do <laughs> musically. Um, and uh, the high school I went to, we just had a band, no orchestra. So like band music was all I was familiar with and started to discover like some of the more contemporary popular composers like John Mackey and Eric Whitaker and like in high school just thought they were the most amazing thing I'd ever heard and kind of started writing music that was uh terrible imitations of them um so then I I I decided it was something I really well didn't decide but I I found out it was something I really enjoyed doing uh and and wanted to pursue it and kind of throughout college definitely shifted from like what I listen to and what I try to write and like you know that thing that every composer has to do of finding their own voice and getting away from <laughs> the thing that inspired them to do it in the first place so they don't become a, a cheap imitation <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm kind of curious at this because somebody who has no music ability did you just suddenly go like okay it's the summer oh you know what i'm just going to start writing music down here you go here it is and start playing it or i mean what how did it actually occur i just kind of curious um <laughs> it's very silly now that i think about it because i was like i was just thinking i was like gosh wouldn't it be cool if there was like a computer program that you could put notes into and like make sheet music and it would play it back. And of course I had no idea that that was like a thing. Um, so I found MuseScore and started by like doing terrible arrangements of stuff that I really liked. And then I was like, hang on, I could write my own stuff. <laughs> so, so it was very much like, I, I, I wish I was one of those people who could just do everything by hand and like, you know, <laughs> have like these books of manuscript paper and these pristine things. <laughs> but I, I, I've always kind of been more of the do most of it in the notation software um, kind of person. And I guess that's you're, how it started. You're, you're, you're young. You're young. You, you, you don't use, uh, you know, annotated manuscripts anymore. So it's, you know, it's kind of kind of a good thing to do. Yeah, it took me a long time to realize that that wasn't something to be ashamed of or like that everybody has their own process and there's no right or wrong way to do it. Like as long as the product is what you want and is quality, then how does it, why does it matter how you got there? And it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm a big believer in not being afraid of technology. We shouldn't. Yeah, uh, it's not going away. Um, you know, Finale Sibelius MuseScore are not uh, leaving our system anytime soon. So why would we uh, pretend they don't exist? We should use them to their full extent. That's my yeah. That's my <laughs> hill to die on. Yeah, and I suspect Bach would be there using synthesizers if he could. I mean, I don't, yes. I don't think any of the composers, old composers, would actually shy away from it. So. It's kind yeah. of just you use the tools you've got. You know, when the piano forte came in, look, you know, people started using it. They didn't just sort of go, well, sorry, we're going to, this is the original. We've got to go back to using a harpsichord. So, yeah. And it's also, yeah. but I, I also always follow everything up with no one is taking the harpsichord from anybody. You can still write on the harpsichord. <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to write on paper, go write on paper. 
Right. Colin, right to the harpsichord. The harpsichord is the <laughs> instrument of the future here for you. <laughs> so, shall we shall we listen to some music? Do you think that's a good idea at this point? Listen to the first piece. So, so I think the first one we're going to listen to today is called Automata. Would you like to say a little bit about how that came about? Yeah. Uh, so this is kind of a like funny piece to me because uh, I took an electroacoustic music class uh, my senior year because um, the professor that I studied with is uh, Dr. Keho is very much into electroacoustic music. She's amazing and <laughs> everything I wish I could be. Um, and so I took her electroacoustic music class and our final project for one of the semesters was to do something kind of short for electronics and, and, uh, and an instrument of our choice. Uh, so, of course, in in the midst of COVID, I was like, well, I'm not going to write it for <laughs> an instrument that I don't play or can't like get recorded. So kind of out of necessity, I decided to write it for clarinet. And um, I kind of, once I finished it, I kind of just like dumped it <laughs> out there because I was like, well, you know, it's just a school project. It's you know, not anything that I really consider special, um, but it kind of has since become my most performed and like <laughs> most <laughs> successful piece. A lot of people seem to really like it, um, especially clarinetists, which is, I guess, a good thing. Um, <laughs> it's who you want to like it. But um, the basic idea of the piece was uh, just to write something that's kind of like poppy and you know it's like the length of a pop song um at the time i uh wrote it i was playing a lot of scott McAllister's music which uh <laughs> anyone familiar with that will know that there's like very specific uh things that he likes to do with like glissandi and high notes and stuff like that and so that was kind of in the back of my mind as i was writing it and and some of that stuff shows up in there but um the like premise of the piece is that uh it's i thought of it as like a computer trying to become human and sort of imitating uh the clarinet which is the human element so it's that very you know i i, I think i gave myself a pass on going with a very uh overdone trope in electroacoustic music of like technology versus humanity uh since it was my first piece um i was like yeah you know it just it makes sense and uh i i'm i'm really happy with how it came out and uh i i think it's i think it's good <laughs> um so well, yeah let's, let's take a listen then
So that was Automata, and you mentioned just before we played it that it was this idea of there being a a computer that was trying to become human. Um, and and I just want to say that when when I first started it, I did wonder if it was going to go along the battle between humanity and and the automaton world. But as you say, it kind of went off on a different track, which I, I found quite interesting, really. Uh, Jacob, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think every time I listen to um electronic music and and kind of solo with electronics um i am always curious like where the sounds come from from like a nuts and bolts standpoint and maybe i say that as like a uh, a conductor like are they purely electronic are they affected acoustic sound like where did where did that track come from um <laughs> it's maybe not the most exciting answer but it's all from garage band great um, <laughs> It's all synths in this piece, and uh, I, I, when I presented it to the class, the professor kind of said, "Like, wow, it's you know surprising to hear an electroacoustic piece that doesn't use the instrument, like you know, processed and, and stuff like that." Mm -hmm. And I did consider doing that for this piece, but I felt that it kind of thematically wouldn't make sense um, since it's very like very much like two entities and not like the usual electroacoustic thing of making one giant instrument. Mm. Um, so yeah, this was before I upgraded to Logic. So it was all in GarageBand and probably wouldn't be too hard to find all the synths that I used. Well, that, that, was, that was kind of interesting because one of the things that I, I, I'm quite a keen fan of old analog synths. So whenever I hear a synth, I kind of like, or a synth sound, I think, okay, now where's this come from? And but but I kind of liked it. Even I, I was going to say, even though it comes from a non-analog synthesizer, but, <laughs> but I, I didn't mean it in a disparaging way. Often I find that that synthesizer sounds on on digital synths can be quite thin, um, if you know what I mean. But this actually I think had quite a lot of good good thickness to it. I don't know if that's a musical term, but it was quite a thick sound, which I <laughs> yeah. kind of I kind of like. I kind of like that 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 really deep sort of you know multi-layered sort of thing. I think you got that. I, I was quite I, I was quite impressed by the way you got that from a from something like garage band i know that sounds terrible maybe about the software <laughs> but, but i think you know what i mean yeah absolutely and and it's you know certainly not the most professional software it's something that pretty much anyone can use and logic is sort of the more professional version of that but you know it uh it did what i needed it to do for this piece mm. so <laughs> i'm all for the democratization of access to music it doesn't need to be some sort of professional big program i mean logic is great i'm not knocking logic yeah. but like just because everybody can use garage band doesn't mean it's bad we should be embracing that exactly. it's all oh, my yeah. philosophies I... today i don't know why <laughs> no i completely agree and i mean even like as a 
I guess, professional for me, like logic can be intimidating because there's just so much to it. And there's something mm-hmm. about like the stripped back nature of garage band that, you know, it's that old thing of limitation always brings about creativity. And so, yeah, yeah I'm, yeah. I'm all, I'm all for it as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was looking at a, a couple of videos quite recently about some of the old synthesizer. We're kind of on a sidetrack here, but old synthesizer uh, people. And, you know, they were running with, you know, analog synths with one VCO or two VCOs. They had two sounds, you know, and that was it. And they had to generate all this sound from very, very simple components, you know, sort of thing. Whereas now you've got much more opportunity to generate that, those things. So sometimes simple can actually be a lot better. So I'd I, I follow up with, with what Jacob was saying. You know, sometimes the stripped back bare thing is actually sounds more real, if you know what I mean, in a synthesizer way. It's kind of kind of the, the bare bones of what you're trying to get over. So that, that kind of kind of is good, I think. Yeah. So you had also mentioned um, Scott McAllister. And so talk to us, uh, for, for people who are not familiar with Scott's work, <laughs> uh, talk to us about Scott McAllister a bit. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> so he was a clarinetist. Uh, and then uh, in like the 90s, I think, he... Uh, he was in a car accident and pretty much injured, injured his hand to the point where he wasn't able to play anymore. Um, and he, after that, he kind of made a career out of writing clarinet music. And it's, uh, very distinctive because he's always using, um, inspiration from like grunge music um i played two of his pieces uh i've played his x concerto which is based on the music of nirvana and then i've played black dog which is the one that is his most performed and and most well-known piece and uh and that's inspired by the led zeppelin song black dog um and yeah i i love his music um i it's so much fun to play um and it's you know very clearly comes from a clarinetist because it's you know you listen to it and you're like how could you do that it's so fast and like so it it sounds so difficult but it lays really well under the fingers so it's kind of easy to learn and and it's really good like show-offy music um but yeah it's it's definitely um he's one of the composers that really like opened my eyes in college to to contemporary music that's kind of not bound by I guess I don't I I don't feel too prickly about talking about this because I've listened to the other episodes of the podcast so I know you you're on the same page that you know his music's not really bound by the elitism of a lot of the new music world and like it is you know it's not necessarily tonal it's very clearly you listen to it and you're like yeah this is not beethoven um but but i i think his music is very accessible which is that buzzword that everybody hates but that i think is important um uh so yeah it's his music is so accessible to the listener and it's like I I don't come from a from a family that's like super into new music. Um so it was interesting 
having them come to some of my concerts and listen to some of them online and like going from my freshman year they were like what is all of this weird (laughs) stuff and then like kind of gaining an appreciation for it and I think a lot of it was like Scott McAllister because there's always like something for the listener to hold on to in all the chaos which is um something that I definitely try to try to do in my more out there works which I don't think any of them that we're listening today are more out there these are my most tonal pieces but also the ones that I consider the most um indicative of my style I totally went off on a tangent there, but um... that's what we're here for. This is the point. Yeah. I mean, it's kind, it's kind of good. I think, you know, as you said, the accessibility question, I mean, to me, there's no point in writing lots of music that's not accessible to people. Um, I mean, it's kind of, what's the point, you know, quite honestly, I mean, because that you're, I mean, music for me is entertainment yeah, as, as well as everything else. So it, if it's not entertaining, then it's kind of, a, a I don't know, theoretical exercise in in you know for yourself an internal musical yeah. discussion I guess yeah yeah and I, I think that um, there there can be such a like mindset in the new music world of like if you're writing mu- music that people like you're selling out <laughs> or like you're catering to the masses and it's like no you know if if you're writing music that's really true to what you want to do, then you're not selling out. And it's, you know, I, I have a ton of respect for, like, the really out there music of, of today. And I really love it. But I also, you know, spent four years studying it and <laughs> and have had to cultivate a love of it. Whereas, and, you know, it's it's great. I'm glad people feel they're able to to write what they want and and stuff that's true to them but i i like i i'm writing very tonal music and i feel like i'm also doing that so I, yeah the 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 war between accessible and avant-garde is is very strange to me <laughs> but it kind of happens everywhere i mean it, i you know I, I grew up in the punk rock era. And and if you went around saying, wow, aren't ABBA fantastic? You got sort of like, what? That's pop. And like, everybody loves ABBA. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. So <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of the same thing. It, it's like, you know, people love tonal music. Doesn't mean that atonal isn't good as well. But, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of it's kind of people just sort of have this thing about, well, because because uh, everybody else loves it, it can't be a good thing. If I, I've got to be the special person, the one person that loves this piece of music, it's kind of yeah. kind of very strange. Yeah, there's a uh, a composer in in Canada who uh, neither of you will know. He's very young and he's a um, choral specific composer, but his name is Matthew Emery, uh, and he's he's a lovely person, um, and he writes just the most beautiful choral music but it is so within a box of like choral it's it's just like pretty and it sounds so nice and he can pump out like 12 a day and initially i think people were so oh well i can't like matthew emery's music because it's it's so (laughs) within a box of choral and whatever 
but it's beautiful. It's so nice. <laughs> and it's so he's able to do it so well. And it's uh, not put on. He just really likes to write these stunning chordal, completely tonal within a one, four five box. And they're beautiful. They're great. And so enjoy it. It's new music, but it's, you know, what, what, what are these bad. To say about what are these to say about Rossini? He used to churn out his overture just before five minutes before the performance yeah. because he could churn out three three overtures a day if he wanted to. You know, they're all similar, they're all great, but they're fantastic music. Who cares? You know, so. yeah, enjoy it. <clears throat> Absolutely so back, agree. Back to, from Rossini and Abba back to <laughs> Colin <laughs> and Automata. Um, I did have I did have another. See, we do go off on tangents. I did have a, a question about actually about the clarinet piece here. Seeing we've got two clarinetists, is that is that I, I watched the video and and for a non clarinetist, um, how difficult a bit is that to play? Um, I, I mean, because it, it seemed to be quite a quite hard to play but but you know i'm no clarinetist so so is it where's the difficulty is there a difficulty in that from a clarinetist perspective um i don't i don't know to be honest because i for me it's like it's harder to assess the difficulty when i'm like writing it so i know every note and with this one it was more like i'm gonna write a little bit of clarinet and then like you know, see how it fits along with the electronics or, you know, vice versa or whatever. So it was a lot of like figuring it out as I go. So by the time the piece was done, I had already learned it. <laughs> um, oh, okay. But I, I think it's, I intended it to be kind of a good, like, uh, starting out piece for like, maybe undergraduates who want to play electronic music, but, but are like really intimidated by like, stuff that uses max msp and like you know live processing which uh is still i've done a little bit of it i don't know that i'm gonna go back to it because it's so strange and i i can't wrap my mind around it but so this is just a a track that you play along with and it's like i i honestly thought of it as just like a solo piece with piano accompaniment mm. oh, okay. so okay. so i'd say it's you know it's not not difficult but it's I think it's like attainable for hmm. like intermediate to advanced. But Jacob, I'm I interested say, to see I what mean, you think. <laughs> as as someone who's listened to it but has not seen the score and 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 has not like studied it at all, I think what strikes me is um, perhaps the difficulty in learning something uh, like this piece is less the mechanics and less the clarinetting and more uh, if you're not used to working in that world, it's pretty difficult. And I say that because I work almost exclusively in new music. I really don't do uh, like as a clarinetist, as a conductor, you have to conduct things, but like as a clarinetist, <laughs> I don't really play anything that's not new music. And so uh, to me, it's very, very, to use that word accessible as in, I understand that like language. If that were placed in front of me, I would kind of, 
know what it is I'm going for. And so the mechanics of it, like, fine, you know, it is what it is. But the 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 way it would get put together or the concept of putting those sounds and those, uh, not really extended techniques, but, like, you know, on, on the board of extended techniques <laughs> with... Um, like electronic sounds makes perfect sense to me. Now, if you were to put that in front of a uh, like symphony musician with a capital S, that would scare the bejesus out of them. Like they would have no <laughs> idea what to do with that. But I say that as somebody who lives and breathes like new clarinet world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's maybe the, 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 the difficulty is less about the, um, the mechanics of the piece and more what the ask is, but that's that's me having not played it. But that would be my assessment. I mean, one of the things when I when I listened to it first of all, and maybe again, I, I, I'm not an expert in this, but it almost sounded like it got a bit almost jazzy in places. Does that kind yeah. of make sense? There's a little bit of jazziness in there, and I kept thinking we're going we're going to go almost full jazz at one point, but we didn't quite. <laughs> we, we kept sort of away from it, but but it had that kind of feel to it. Yeah, and actually, you just reminded me that I didn't send the score, which if you would like me to, I would be happy to share it. But um, I'm always happy to look at the score. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, but actually, I, gosh, I can't believe I didn't mention this. Uh, the beginning and the ending have uh, improvisatory sections. So mm-hmm. it's like, I just like went into like preview and drew a squiggly line and it was like, eh, you know, vaguely follow this. So, so that, that's probably where the jazz comes in. Cause it is improvisation. And that again, like comes into the, the whole human versus technology thing mm. and the human's ability to improvise um, and go off book, I guess. <laughs> so. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Oh, good. Excellent. Well, let's let's maybe move on um, to the second piece we've got, which is uh, Space Between Lovers. So perhaps you'd like to introduce, one, introduce this one, please, Colin? So this piece was, uh, it's for viola solo, and it was commissioned by uh, my dear friend, Gabby Sioka, uh, who's currently studying at the University of Arizona. Um and Gabby and I kind of first became friends over uh, our shared interest in film. Um, and so I, when I do a commission, I always like ask, you know, what, how much control do you want over the style or, you know, what the piece is like, is there anything specific you want it to base to be based around? And so she said, you know, I, since we both love film so much, I like, I want you to base it off of a film. So, um, which is not a difficult ask for me because way too much of my music is based on films. Um, so, uh, I kind of spent a lot of time like thinking about what movies I had, I I could explore through music thematically that I haven't (laughs) already. Um, and, I I ended up on uh, Before Sunrise by uh, directed by Richard Linklater, which is that whole trilogy is like one of I think the greatest works of filmmaking ever, um, and it's just this beautiful romance. And uh, there's a line in it um, where uh, Julie Delpy's character tells Ethan Hawke, "I'm." I don't have it sitting in front of me, so I'm probably going to, you know, misquote it. But um, 
but she basically says that it uh that like if there's any god in the world it's in the space between two people and in the attempt to understand someone else um so i i I think that's just so beautiful and everything about the film is just beautiful romantic escapism and then the trilogy gradually kind of gets more realistic and sad if if you've seen it uh you know what i mean and it's not an easy watch but um (laughs) uh but this is more about that you know initial first movie that's just dreamy and romantic and um i i really wanted to just uh lean into like total saccharin like romance movie soundtrack for this and um mostly because right before i wrote this i uh finished writing my piano trio which is very angry and you know clangy pretty atonal so so it was just kind of one of those where i was like yeah i need to take a breath and write something that just feels kind of natural and and innate to me um and yeah it's really just kind of like variations on this one chord progression throughout um and i really wanted to play with this idea of of like time fluctuating um especially when you're like with that special person you know um and and so there's like moments where one idea will be like really stretched out to like a minute and then other times where it's like condensed into 16th notes um and yeah so that's kind of the the general basis behind it uh it's probably one of my favorite pieces that I've written. Um, it's definitely one of the ones that I have the most like personal attachment to and just found really uh, to come to come very much from like within and not like, okay, I need to try to write something. So well, let's have a listen.
Um, okay, so that was uh, that was space between lovers, uh, and let me just say that I, I thought it was. Uh, I read about the the relationship to the film, and I must admit I was very impressed about how it got a feel. I don't know the film, I must say, but but how I got impressed about the feel of what of that film w was meant to be like, and in fact it kind of reminded me of of a very old film showing my age here, uh, Brief Encounter. Um, I don't know if you know that film. It's it's a very old. It's a similar romance film. Two people meet up and and they fall in love and all this, but they can't be together. Which sounds kind of similar story, I guess. And, and it kind of it kind of made me think it fitted that kind of move, that kind of wanting sort of haunting moments. Very good. I, I really felt that was a a really good feeling I got about it. So I could see it as a as a part of a film score. I thought that was really good. Well, thank you. That was that was the goal. <laughs> I'm glad it came across. <laughs> it uh, it was really interesting to to listen to because it it reminded me so much of, and and I say this as a massive positive. Like it it sounds so much like a a hurdy gurdy meets like Scandinavian tonal passage. Like it just it has this uh, settled feeling maybe it comes from like the drone note that's like so prevalent most of the time but it also just feels really genuinely um again as a huge positive like raw like it feels very um comfortably anxious in its sound i guess i loved it it was great it um yeah, it really it it worked for me on a number of levels, but it 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 makes so much sense to me to use viola for that that kind of uh, range and sound and like ability to get that kind of like out of a viola, which is so important. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming these are all things you've you've thought about, but like, what what did you? Uh, how did you come to that? I guess. Oh. Uh... Sorry, which which part? <laughs> I don't know. Um, like the, maybe let's let's say the like the, the the composition style, like the the drone and the pitches and the uh, the kind of reoccurring theme. Like you said, it was it's one yeah. chord progression that that kind of comes through often um, with maybe like variations to it or kind of. Um, uh, yeah, different like filigree to it every now and again. How did the, how did that yeah. come about? Um, largely through like sort of at the time of writing the piece, having a newfound understanding of the mechanics of the instrument and like really trying to explore, like of course, lots of multiple stops and you know writing a solo piece and still having harmony to it. Uh, mm. can be a challenge, but it's, you know, not too terribly difficult on a string piece. Um, so I really wanted to to just explore a lot of, like, the, I, the basic mechanics of the instrument. And I think maybe that's why it comes across as, like you said, like, raw, because it's, like, so much of it is based on that, like, open fifth string tuning and, like, the fundamental pitches of each string and uh like you know lots of use of harmonics as well so it's like it's it, it was an attempt to 
uh, I, I guess in a thematic sense, understand the the instrument on its most like core level, um, and and also just out of like pure love of the instrument. When she said she wanted a viola piece, I was like, God, yes, <laughs> I've always wanted this. <laughs> it's one of my favorite instruments. <laughs> yeah, people don't write enough for viola. People, I agree. Need to write more for viola. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I'm a huge fan of uh, viola works, and I and I think there's also something, you know, maybe analogous about uh, exploring the instrument, and uh, if it's that space between two lovers concept of like exploring the idea of like stretched time, and then time doesn't have the same meaning in those contexts, and uh, it, it's a similar exploration in my mind. Maybe it's a is a way to connect it. Yeah. This is the piece that I felt had a south, bit of a southwestern feel to it, and 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 the reason is is that I kind of got this image of almost like some people sitting on the porch playing a viola, like it was like a, a, this this sort of I don't know why you use the word rustic feel, but it had a kind of folky yeah. sort of feel of of like you know I could imagine a, a porch in southwest US somewhere with somebody sitting on the porch playing this as you know it just in seeing time slowly progress by on one of those hot summer evenings you know afternoon kind of things yeah. and it kind of had a bit of southwestern to me a south a bit of that kind of feel maybe south maybe not completely southwest but that kind of feel of a long <laughs> hot folky sort of thing so yeah i definitely think there's uh there's folk influence in there because there kind of is in all of my music i think the earliest genre of music i can remember being exposed to is folk and bluegrass and so that uh shows up in lots of my music again like intentionally or not like uh i i have a wind quintet where one of the movements is like straight up a fiddle tune um and that was very intentional um whereas this is just kind of you know i think it goes back to that like folk music and and fiddle music is so like um i i have a friend who's a who's a an incredible uh bluegrass musician um i i don't know how much it would have reached sweden and, and canada but um uh a band called run boy run um which uh you know they've they've played on uh like prairie home companion so in the folk world they're they're pretty big and um a couple of the members live in tucson and we're very close um and i, I remember one time that uh she said to me that uh to her folk music it was like something very i think the word she used was like primal <laughs> um so there's just like something very innate about it and like again just like getting right to the like heart of what the instrument is and like the the basis of it and and so I, I think there's definitely some parallels there um and with you know some of the gestures they're just very folky especially in that section towards the end that's like the drone glissando stuff like yeah <laughs> sounds good sounds good yeah i thought i thought um as i said for me it was quite 
it, it was probably the most American of the pieces, if you know what I mean. I, I, it was kind yeah. of like had a <laughs> had a very grounded American feel to it, you know, like you get from hearing, you know, the 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 Gershwins or something else, you know, whatever. You get that kind of American feel, and this one for me had that kind of feel to it, which which wasn't necessarily true of the others. So this one, I think, was the most ground. Seemed to me the most grounded in Tucson, if you like. Yeah, I yeah, I can absolutely see that. Definitely, probably some Copeland influence in there too. I love Copeland. I was gonna say the <laughs> yeah. influence of Copeland, the expanse yeah. <laughs> of Copeland. Copeland Absolutely. always sounds so open and uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. there's also um, is um, is uh, John Luther Adams Alaskan? Is that where he's from? I think so. Is he Alaskan? Anyway, it, wherever John Luther Adams is from, also just sounds so like expansive and open mm. and uh yeah. like you can see i i mean we we also have i mean prairies in in canada um and i, I remember <laughs> driving through the prairies in canada and thinking uh well there's the town that i'm driving to it's three hours away but there it is and i'm just gonna slowly get closer to it um <laughs> that that feeling of like that space and that stretch is so um prevalent in in copeland and john luther adams and yeah it's it's a very real compositional technique weirdly enough yeah yeah and it's kind of interesting because i've always i first came across that in Dvorak's work you know from the new world symphony which is obviously mm -hmm. the sort of the i was gonna say quintessentially american but of course he's not so but it <laughs> but it kind of came over as suddenly he went to america and and this is what happened to his music which is kind of, kind of an, an interesting influence, you know, how, how it somehow affected him to actually write something which was sounds American. It's kind of, kind of a, you know, are we, are we manipulated by our environment? You know, how much are we manipulated? Now, there's a deep philosophical question we can go on for <laughs> half an hour about. <laughs> I think it's very, very true. I mean, we just had in Canada, uh, we had our... Um, uh, Oh, now I'm going to absolutely forget is he just passed away. Our Murray Schaefer, our Murray Schaefer just died, uh, who was kind of a, an influential, influential Canadian composer. Um, and uh, he would have been 80, I guess, but his music sounds so Canadian. It's so quintessentially Canadian and it's so environmental based. And he's uh, always was referencing these sounds, but he was, he was a composer um, who was uh, his music sounded so aleatoric and so like freeform, but it wasn't, it was like very, very specific, but he had this way of writing that just made you feel like you were, I don't know, wandering through the Lake Superior National Park or something, but encountering <laughs> a moose, but it was very, uh, very specific. But uh, I think there is something to be said for, you know, uh, where you are writing from your, your positionality and where you're coming from uh, has a huge influence on, on how you write. Um, but that's a that's a much larger, much larger I'm conversation, much, I suppose. We'll, we'll pass on that one till the second second volume two of the of the uh, the podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, let's let's uh, yeah. Let's let me on to the third piece. Uh, so we don't want to ignore that. That's um, Solitudes Part Two. Um, so something about that one. Yes. Uh, so this was uh, kind of an attempt at stylistic imitation to some degree um so this is a, a two movement piece uh we're only going to listen to the second movement um 
but the first was kind of like how much can i sound like john adams uh <laughs> and then the second movement is uh kind of an attempt to copy well not copy <laughs> um to imitate george crumb um but both are very much like trying to use the techniques that they used but with my own like voice and and tonal material and stuff um so you know this is definitely not going to be as <laughs> uh strange as crumb even though there are a lot of those like inside the piano techniques oh yeah it's for solo piano i don't know if i mentioned that already mm-hmm. um but yeah so uh the piece is called solitudes because um each movement is sort of trying to depict a different like very uh very empty place so the first movement is about space and the second movement is about uh the deep sea um and uh i i've always had a really like strong fascination with like the deep deep sea like where there's like nothing and every fish has a gigantic mouth so that they can eat just whatever they find because <laughs> you, there's you live in tucson you live in tucson how can you have a how can you have a thing about the deep sea in i don't know i don't know i mean we're close to mexico we're like <laughs> we're not too far from the beach but <laughs> um but yeah I, I again i don't know what it is it's something that i find like deeply enticing but also deeply like ter- terrifying scary. terrifying yeah, and, scary yeah yeah it's yeah. horrifying I'm, I'm terrified of it but like but yeah just that sort of like thought of of being suspended just like in complete darkness where there's like no one and nothing around and maybe a terrifying giant squid yeah. or something um you see, those, you see one of those fish with the little light coming on you know yeah towards <laughs> you in, the big, in the big mouth and you see it getting closer that time, yeah horror movie yeah. stuff this is horror yeah movie. yeah although <laughs> go on sorry although i think uh this is a lot <laughs> well it was trying to be a lot less like terrifying jaws music and more like um <laughs> just sort of reflecting that very still sort of space and and kind of you know this wandering it's it's unmetered both movements are actually unmetered um and the first movement is like all 16th notes it's like very like constant motion and rhythm because it's john adams um and then this one is very like still there's very few notes um it's so it's almost ambient music i'd say um at least in in intention so Okay. Well, let's let's give it a listen. See whether it's jaws or ambience music. So uh, <laughs> here we have Solitude's part two.
So that was uh, Solitude's part two. And, and I must say, Colin, this is, this is actually one of my favorite pieces. Uh, you, you actually sent me this some time ago with the first part, and, and I love this second part. I, I, it is absolutely fantastic. I love the whole aspect of playing with the piano in, in such, a, such a way. Uh, I, I was disappointed there was no, um, didn't George Crumb do this bit with mallets and a cello or something? Isn't he famous for do, attacking a cello with a mallet? Uh, I was a yeah. bit <laughs> Yeah, that was the only, but no, honestly, I, I thought this was, this for me, I loved the sort of the, the thunderous chords and the playing with the strings in the background. Uh, and, and it really just came over to me as just a, a really atmospheric, you know, fantastic piece of music for me. Thank you. Yeah, it's always nice to to hear uh, like piano used in interesting ways, and it's I mean, there's just there's so much piano music, and there's so much uh, like hundreds of years of piano music, and it's uh, such an underutilized instrument in so many ways. We have so many methods of making sound on a piano that we forget and kind of ignore, and it's so nice to you know touch the strings. It's great. Play it like a harp. <laughs> it's good. Get inside. Um, so I I always appreciate that. And it, it did have a really lovely, um, I think there's always a tendency, you know, as soon as you, you hear something called solitudes, that there's uh, an assumption that it's going to be just this morose, heavy, um, (laughs) depressing, really, yeah, depressing, like, we're all alone. Oh gosh. Yeah. And I, you know, as soon as you read that, you kind of expect it, but there, I mean, and, and as much as it's, you know, unmetered and, and free and it's really, uh, at times, again, maybe expansive in a sense. It didn't feel and doesn't feel um, aggressively morose, which is which is great. I, I appreciate the um, the kind of nuanced understanding of the word solitudes. Maybe is the, <laughs> yeah. is the thing oh I yeah. Enjoy. For me, as an introvert, it's like ah, oh, we're all alone. Isn't that great? <laughs> um, so yeah. It is. Yeah, and you had these fantastic chords, though. I just love these you know, big chords you have in it. And and that, for me, really just sort of, you know, because you're kind of going along and you've got the plucking of you've got the strings. I guess they're scraping sc- strings at one point and this kind of thing. And then you get these chords and then you've got the strings, bit of the piano. And it, and it kind of just, it's kind of keeps moving. Maybe going for what Jacob said, sometimes these solitude pieces don't move anywhere. You know what I mean? They almost like they're like stodgy. It's like, you know, they sort of sit on you and they're like, oh, but but this kept mo- this moved. I mean, it was kind of had some dynamic to it, which I re- and in volume and in everything. So it kind of kind of kept you moving along. You know, there was a story coming, which I kind of liked about it. Yeah, it's definitely the kind of difficult. Um, one of the difficult things about writing a piece like this is like, how do I keep it really floaty and stationary, but not boring? Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I guess it's up to the listener to decide <laughs> whether I accomplished that or not. But um, I mean, it's something that I, I felt very. Uh, this was a difficult piece to write. I went through so many different drafts of it, and just none of them were good. And it was like, you know one of the first instances where I really tried to branch out with extended techniques and uh, I could have gone a lot farther with it. Um, Piano techs don't like that. So uh, (laughs) when you're recording at a university, uh, 
I, I went, I went with the asking for permission rather than forgiveness route, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it was very like, <laughs> you know, the, they're always so careful about extended techniques and just so prickly about any kind. It's like, well, this isn't going to hurt it. I'm not like banging it with metal or anything, but, um, so most of the inside the piano stuff is pretty, tame it's just like kind of lightly <laughs> strumming the fingers across and there are a couple of times where um where they like kind of hit the strings with the palm of their hand um so yeah i, I don't remember exactly where i was going <laughs> with that but but yeah i'm glad to hear that it wasn't just like stodgy and boring which is what i was oh. afraid of but and i think uh as a as a companion piece to the first movement it it works well too because the first movement's very exhausting and like you don't want to hear any more 16th notes after that. <laughs> uh, but, but I, I actually, I mean, I, I've, I've listened to the first piece as well. And, and actually I think together they make a fascinating pair. I, I, I kind of like, I mean, I think on their own that they're, they're great. I mean, I like, I like them listening to them, but, but together they kind of have this, I don't know, is it play off of each other, I guess, in a way? Um, they kind of, so So I think anybody listening to this, uh, go and listen to Solitudes, the first part as well, and, and listen to them together, because I think it actually uh, increases the enjoyment of the second part, I would say. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. Uh, Companion pieces are always really fascinating. I, I and we're, again, we're not listening to the, the first one here, but it's... Uh, I'm a big fan of like tension and release, uh, uh, like mm -hmm. like every musician, I suppose. But it's it's uh, it's nice to like build up that feeling and then have this as a second movement where you can kind of just allow your your blood pressure to come back down, I suppose, and and kind of relax a little bit into it. Yeah, it was very very lovely to listen to. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And, and I and I kind of liked that that idea of, of the first piece. You say building the tension, and the second piece. I mean, it would be great to hear. You know, actually physically doing something with the piano kind of thing. There's a physicality to it, if you know what I mean. That's yeah. part of the release. It's like, I'm going to do this to the piano or this to the piano. It kind of it kind of had a bit of, you know, physical movement to it rather than like, oh, we're at the piano kind of thing, which I, I kind of liked. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely am really uh, fixated on, like, contrasts uh, and... It, it, that and that's something that I think like came out of studying composition and kind of like realizing that if one thing is going to contrast from the previous idea, it has to be like completely the other end of the spectrum, like something that's like kind of like it, but like kind of contrasting like doesn't work usually. Usually, I mean, it can. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> so. No, that's fantastic, fantastic. So, so what's next? Are you going to do a uh, now that you've uh, uh, graduated? Are you going to go off and uh, then get the pluck the piano harder on your next piece and <laughs> hit it with a hammer and this kind of thing? Is that is that the goal now, or where are you heading? What's what's the next thing? Um, so I am actually currently working on something uh, that somebody. Uh, emailed me after hearing my music on your radio show, Samantha. Um, and it, uh, he's a playwright and 
uh, oh, wow. wrote this this like short screenplay about um, like Russia in the early 20th century and uh, wants like two minutes of music for it. So that's what I'm working on right now. Um, and then I'm also in the planning stages of a uh, piece for Duo Entre Nous, which is um, a clarinet saxophone duo with uh, Jackie Glazier, uh, who was my professor, and her duo partner, Don Paul Kale, uh, who's based in Belgium. Um, and that's going to be my next, like, exploration of uh extended techniques because they're a very new music centered duo and i want to mm -hmm. you know write something that's very uh true to what they are and so um and that's uh and that piece is based around uh ghost stories which is another thing that i'm completely fixated on i i love a good <laughs> ghost story <laughs> so. that's, that sounds fantastic sounds absolutely fantastic well you know i'm going to say two things which you probably know already the first is I want to make sure that you get me to play that music as soon as you've got it released so that I can put it on the radio show. But secondly, um, you know, I'm sure we'd love to have you back sometime to talk more about some of your, your next stuff uh, when it's out there. Um, so it's been fantastic. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Colin. Thank you. This was great. Thank yeah. you, Colin. Yeah, we would love to have you back. It's always great to do a follow-up. This would be, that'd yeah. be lovely. Yeah, I'd Absolutely. love to. There, uh, actually, there was a the one piece that I like really wanted to play for this uh, had its premiere pushed back to March. It was supposed to be premiered this past weekend. Um, and that one is, you know, the most fitting for the theme of the podcast. It's very, it's very gay. And uh, <laughs> well, then next and I'm very, So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.